Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I want people listening to this to kind of start to say, oh, there's more out there than I realized possible. What is your one favorite thing that everybody thinks is bad for you that is actually good for you? I mean, I, I would probably, I, you know, I, I regret saying this a little bit since my kids might listen to this, but but the assumption that video games are just this terrible waste of time and this generation is growing up playing these stupid games is really right so now. wrong. Uh I've been watching my kids play the new Battlefield, Battlefield 1, which is set in World War I, and it's amazing. And what I do with my kids is I sit and watch them play and ask them what they're thinking about. Because as a grown-up who doesn't play the game, you can't process it. I mean, it's just so much going on in the world, and they're playing this multiplayer game in this incredibly vivid landscape with a million kind of data points strewing across the screen. And and so I'm always like, tell me, how did you know that there was that thing was there? And he's like, well, couldn't you see this signal? And I got this one piece of the interface was telling me that. And I'm like, I can't, I, all I can see is like, there's a gun and like there's a Zeppelin. <laughs> like, that's all I can tell. You know, like, so kids are tell. basically going to destroy us. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're the ones that are going to end up in diapers. They start yes. off there, we end up that's, there. Well, that's the way it goes. So I've got with me one of my favorite authors, Stephen Johnson, author of uh, How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World, and also the recent book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Also, Stephen, I have blatantly stolen from you again and again without giving you any credit at all really? in um, uh, Where Do Ideas Come From? Where Good oh, Ideas Come From. Yeah. So, so <laughs> these books... Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you talk in a second, but these books like it's almost like amazing the connections. It's like a joke the connections you bring from one historical event mm. to another. Like how you can basically say the invention of the phonograph led to China's uh, China having more boys than girls born. Right, like you right. make these kind of like odd connections in history, but then they make complete sense. It's almost like a game. So I do this game with a friend of mine. Like I'm reading Stephen Johnson's book and here's the connection. Tell me the, the linkage. Right, right. And it's a challenge. You, you should make a board game out of your books. But that's like, a good idea. No one's ever proposed that. I think you can make like a card game with <laughs> right. dice, like, yeah, yeah. and you know that, that fits your uh, your your intro to Wonderland. How you tried to make a dice game, almost yeah, like a yeah. fantasy sports dice game. But but like in that, like 
talk about some of these connections. And again, these two books, your last two books, How We Got to Now, and the most recent one, Wonderland, which is excellent, um, they're both almost like the same type of idea, like these 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 kind of looking at history from this upside-down point of view to really sort of underline that it's not just what we read in the textbooks. There's all these unusual connections between ideas that we really need to respect more to understand what happened and maybe to even improve our own lives and coming up with ideas and so on. But like, tell some of the connections, like this, this, yeah, sure. this phonograph and, and China, for instance. Well, it's really, it's really the, it's the uh, ultrasound. Actually, I haven't talked about that story in a long time, but it's the, uh, first off, figuring out uh, sonar, uh, in part because the sinking of the Titanic, right? So the Titanic sinks in the sky. Reginald Fessenden um, comes up, is inspired by this idea of protecting ships, and then World War One breaks out, and he begins to think, okay, if we could bounce sound off of objects like icebergs or uh, submarines, and listen for how long it takes the sound to come back, uh, we could begin to protect our ships from threats like icebergs and so on. And so the, the whole kind of technology of Sonar is invented, and that eventually leads to ultrasounds. The same principles at work, right? When right. you're determining, like, is it a boy or a girl, like, in the uterus, you're bouncing sound waves off of this little child, just in the exact same way you're bouncing sound waves to see if there's an iceberg in front of your ship, right? Uh, and so the invention of ultrasound machines based on this this principle of, of sonar that Fessenden and others had come up with um, – Eventually, ultrasound machines make their way into China, and there are, tragically, a number of, a, a, a massive number of abortions, kind of sex-centric uh, abortions, um, where uh, people figure out if they're having a boy or a girl, and they have an abortion if there's a girl. And this leads to a skewed gender ratio in the population of China, which is an empirical fact. We know that there right. are more boys and girls in China. Um because they were able to see the sex of the child thanks to ultrasound machines. And so you have this weird chain of events where someone is trying to initially just keep disasters like the Titanic from happening. And 80 years later, the whole gender composition of, of the largest nation on Earth is affected by that technological breakthrough. But it's not even just sonar, because before that, I mean, the idea that sound itself is an object that could be yeah. measured. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, which which dates back to... The you know the phone and the yep. phonograph you know the idea that you could take a sound put it into some other format send it through some other instrument whether it's uh, you know a, a music player or a telephone or whatever and have it come out as a sound that itself was you know led to sonar ultimately absolutely in fact one of my favorite stories in in how we got to now this is all kind of from the sound uh, chapter and episode because we did we did a TV show based on this as well. Um, uh, is a story of about a, a failed innovation, and which is something we don't study enough, right? We don't study breakthrough ideas that were ahead of their time in all these different ways, but somehow didn't connect for whatever reason. To, and I think it's important to learn from those failures, right? Um, and so there was this technology developed by this French inventor in the 1850s called the phonautograph. And this guy, uh, who had a great French name, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville, um, he invents the first technology that can record sound waves um, 25 years before Edison invents the phonograph, right? So he's t a generation ahead of Edison, which is pretty amazing. And it would capture the, the sound wave through this kind of vessel that would vibrate and then pass on those vibrations to a little 
pig's bristle, which would then etch out the shape of a sound onto a rotating cylinder, and you could unfurl this piece of paper, and you would see the shape of the sound. So for the first time, this abstract idea of sound waves is being captured, right? It's an incredible breakthrough. We've never heard of this guy, right? I mean, he this was a failed, he had this great vision and was at way ahead of its time, but it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is that he failed to include one key feature in this device, which was playback. There was no way to listen to the audio you had recorded. So you could capture it, but you couldn't hear any of the sound you captured. Well, why do you think, I mean, wouldn't you think that would be, again, as you refer to it in um, Where Do Ideas Come From, uh, wouldn't you think that would be the adjacent possible? Like, oh, okay, we just took a sound and turned it into some form of representation. Why don't we take that representation and even use it to play uh, pianola, as you yeah. as you, you, yeah, know, you yeah. mentioned in, in Wonderland? Uh, like, Well, that is kind of what happened, but I, part of the lesson, I think, actually, which is a big theme of, of all of my books, really, um, the thing that I find fascinating about the story is like, why did did Scott not think of this? Um, why did he get stuck with this half of the solution, right. right? And and part of that was that he was he was trapped under a kind of a single metaphor for how he was thinking about the problem he was trying to solve. So he was thinking about it in terms of shorthand and dictation. He thought if you could capture the sound of somebody speaking and write it onto a piece of paper, people would learn to read that language, and it would be basically like an automated transcription system, right? They would learn to read the the symbols of sound, which was actually a kind of a good bet, right? People had been deciphering little scribbles since the invention of alphabet and turning them into words and sentences. But well, well, and also it seems like, and you refer to this in in I think it's it's, it's Wonderland, uh, just the idea of music, and we, we you know they yep. found instruments forty thousand years old. Why was there music? And and there's no real known answer, but perhaps it's because uh, percussion might have even preceded language as a warning symbol, or or it's easy to code with with sound. Yeah, there there's this really interesting long connection between between music and code, which which as you said is a big theme of Wonderland. I think what's interesting to me about the phonograph story is if he had had if he had had a I think one of his problems was he was working alone. Mm. And if he had had a collaborator who was coming at the problem from a slightly different angle with a different metaphor, like if he'd been working with a musician, the musician would have said at some point, like, Edward, I like your invention. It's really great. But, like, wouldn't it be great if we could also hear the sound and, you know, like we could maybe record some music and then we could play it back? And he might have invented the phonograph, you know, 20 years before Edison or something like that. But because he was trapped in this single way of looking at the problem rather than looking at it as a group with different diverse perspectives. He he couldn't see around that. But you're right about the adjacent possible because what ended up happening was actually it didn't really influence Edison, but Alexander Graham Bell got a hold of this phonograph device and he modified it and turned that into the first telephone. So it did have this important kind of legacy effect, but Scott sadly died penniless and forgotten. So it's kind of a tragic story. Well, it's, it's so funny how um, the people who don't kind of finish the race. You know, they're all sort of in a relay race of yeah, ideas. Yeah. And the people who are sort of in the middle of the relay race often die penniless yeah, and yeah. forgotten. But um, there's a, But there's, they were important, and, and it's worth figuring out who those people were and figuring out why they didn't quite make it. I think that there's a lot of... We, we tend to focus the history of innovation on the winners and the triumphant folks who made a fast fortune rather than some of those important relays because they... If you didn't have the relays, none of this would have happened. Well, I, I want to ask you about that because ultimately what I'm very interested in is, A, your process of how you think of some of these amazing connections, and B, 
uh, in general, how one comes up with ideas. I want I want yeah, people yeah. listening to this to kind of start to say, oh, there's more out there than I realized possible. But I I, I want to put together a couple of more of these like amazing connections that you put together sure. um, just because they're funny. Yeah, they're good, they're good stories. And, yeah. and there's, it, it, it's my favorite thing to do now is to kind of write these stories. Uh, and, 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 I, and I have to, I, I mean, there's so many of them, I have to like sort of re- remember them, but um, I mean, like you have, um, well, I'll refer again to how we got to now, just the 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 connection between air, <laughs> air, conditioning. Condi- air, air conditioning and <laughs> the industrialization of the entire southern United States. Yeah, and, and politics, right? So, Air conditioning is originally invented in in Brooklyn, actually, um, by Willis Carrier, who goes on to be, to found the Carrier Corporation. Um, and initially, he's actually not trying; he's trying to solve this industrial problem, which is a printing press, but more or less in Williamsburg, um, in like 1904 or something like that. And in the summer months, it's too humid, um, and they're printing these full color magazines, and the ink is not drying properly because it's so uh, moist in the office. So. Carrier devises a scheme to basically pull the moisture out of the air. And when he successfully does this, it also makes the air both less humid and also slightly cooler. Hmm. And it works in solving the problem of keeping the ink from running on the page. But it also is really nice in the room with this machine. Right, so, as, as you mentioned, suddenly everyone no- noticed that they wanted to sit by the, everyone's by like, the printers. I'm going to have lunch <laughs> in that room like, yeah. rather than sit, sit outside where it's you know 98 degrees and humid. And so Carrier starts to think, well, maybe this is there's some other application for it. And he invents, you know, proper air conditioning. And it's used largely for 30 or 40 years. It's used in industrial environments or big movie theaters um, or big office buildings. It's not a kind of home technology at all. And then after World War II, uh, the Carrier Corp and a couple of other companies introduce window units and then central air for homes. And this takes off in the 50s. And the introduction of this technology into people's homes suddenly makes it possible, really, to live in large numbers in the south or the desert uh, southwest, these places where the temperature regularly gets up to 100 degrees in the summer, which were pretty much unlivable. Um, And so you see, really triggered by this single innovation, one of the largest migrations of of people in the history of the United States moving to the Sun Belt and moving to Florida. And you see all these, I mean, you know, Vegas goes from 97 people to whatever it is today, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, all these places just swell in population. And all these retirees move particularly. And so, one, you see all these people moving because of this technology. But what this ends up doing is redrawing the political map of the United States, because you have all these older, more conservative retirees moving to places like Scottsdale and Tucson and so on. And that ends up introducing like a 40-vote swing in the Electoral College. And that creates the possibility of the Sunbelt Coalition that elects Ronald Reagan president in, in 1980. So basically, the invention of the air conditioning <laughs> led to Ronald Reagan's election yeah, in 1980. But, but we, I mean, we have to get the causality right. So Because Jimmy Carter was from the South. He could have taken the South, but he didn't. <laughs> but he was losing. But, but I mean, the, the South, there are other factors that were, there's the African-American migration north. There are other things that are happening, too. It's not the single factor. But if air conditioning had not been invented, it's possible Reagan would have been elected, but he clearly would have needed a different electoral map to to get elected because that kind of older Republican base would not have been in the Sunbelt states. So, okay, I'm going to throw out another connection and you could, two, two connections and you can make the, or two events. It should events be a game show. It's really, right. it, be. it totally should be. So, the, um, 
increasing the width of shop windows in, uh, yeah. I guess, the 1700s in London. Yeah. yeah. Led to slavery. <laughs> okay, it's slightly overstating it. It 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 partially prolonged slavery is the way that I that I would put it. Um, so what ends up happening? This is this is from Wonderland in in the fashion chapter, and and what Wonderland just to give some context, what Wonderland is trying to argue is not just that there are these crazy unintended consequences of things, although that's part of it, but that things that come into the world looking like play, looking like idle amusements frivolous kind of uh, behavior actually have had a wildly disproportionate impact on the history of the world, the history of human civilization, the history of innovation. A lot of breakthrough ideas and new kind of modes of living in society start as playful, you know, diversions and then turn into serious big things. And, and this is an example. So what, what starts to happen in the late 1600s, around 1680, 1690 in London is these new shops start to appear and no one has ever seen stores like this what they they suddenly create for the first time this kind of envelope of luxury in the store itself because previously it was like all barter like flea market style yeah and there were these arcades that had started to form before then but even and those were kind of interesting experiences and big you know kind of open spaces but the actual places where you bought stuff was like little stalls and you would go in and you would buy something. You would barter, as you say, and, and it wasn't particularly nice and it was crowded, whatever. And suddenly these luxury fashion stores, both for uh, home um, uh, furnishing and for clothes, uh, start appearing in London and they have these beautiful, as you said, beautiful plate glass windows um, displaying all these goods. And they're basically decorated like a, a well-to-do person's kind of sitting room. And... At the time, there are all these people, like Daniel Defoe writes about, he cannot figure out why these vendors are oh, wasting I, all this money. I want to interrupt you for one second. Yeah. So, 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 and we'll get back to this. We're, we're yeah. on the store windows. Why are people wasting all this money? Yeah. But you mentioned Daniel Defoe. It obviously wasn't in his book, Robinson Crusoe, where he talks about <laughs> this. What was the name of the book? Because I, I know, but it's it was an odd name. Yeah, it's the, com- uh, it's the complete... English trade tradesman, the complete English tradesman is the, oh is yeah the yeah book, it was something like the British Guide to Commerce in yeah, in I mean, 1727 or something he, like he that. He wrote this overview. But why of, of were commerce. you reading that book? <laughs> oh uh, yeah, this is the like, research. Why are you process. quoting Daniel Defoe? I, in I this? backed into it. I mean, I found an there's an interesting academic essay um, that I found early in the kind of research process for this. I was trying to figure out <laughs> my train of thought was. I knew I wanted eventually to write about department stores because mm-hmm. there's a whole other story about department stores in the 19th century. Right, and so a beautiful discussion of department stores yeah. later on. So that's where I was starting. And so then I started thinking, you kind of back into these things. So like, okay, well, what came before department stores? Where did department stores evolve out of? They didn't just come out of nowhere, right? And so then I started researching the history of kind of luxury commerce and commercial spaces. And that led me to this article about these new shops that were really revolutionary and had never really been seen before and perplexed a lot of people. And in one of these academic articles, there's a quote from Defoe. Um, and so that led me then to this one of Defoe's books, which I never, I think maybe I had heard of it, but I never actually sat down to read it. And so then I went and found this. It's really a kind of an essay inside that book about these new fancy stores. So, so that's, you know, you're just following right. these crazy trails and, you know, it, 50% of the time, they lead nowhere. You know, you're like, what? what's, this, what's the deal with that? And you kind of dig around, and you're like, well, it's interesting, but not so interesting. But sometimes you hit 
gold, I think, as in, as in this story. So the so Defoe writes this thing, and he's like, why are they wasting all this money on oh, their... Sorry, that I didn't turn off the <laughs> sound on my phone. <laughs> so Defoe, Defoe writes this essay where he's like, why are these shopkeepers wasting all this money on their decorations? Why don't they just sell in the most efficient manner possible? And he can't figure it out, but what is happening, and, and really it's these women who are picking up on it who are shopping in these stores for the first time, is that the act of shopping itself is becoming a kind of recreational act, right? For the first time, people are like, oh, it's fun to go and hang out in this nice space. It's a kind of little wonderland in and of itself of a lovely shopping environment, and it's kind of luxurious and all that kind of fun. And what becomes so radical about this, not just the invention of shopping as a leisure pastime, which is interesting in and of itself, but what they start shopping for in these stores is calico and chintz, these these new fabrics from India, beautiful patterns, um, beautiful patterns that could survive multiple washings thanks to these innovations that had come from Indian dyers many hundreds of years before. And they're also cotton, and cotton is the key thing here. They they it, At this point, um, people in England were wearing, like, wool underwear, right? So they were walking around rainy, cold <laughs> London with, and, like, wool underwear And on. women in particular were uncomfortable with <laughs> it. It was just incredibly uncomfortable. So suddenly you have this soft, breathable fabric that can be worn as underwear that has beautiful patterns that survive washing. So this craze for cotton develops, craze for calico and chintz particularly. And there's a huge political backlash because these women start wearing these fabrics. They start doing all this business with India. There's a major trade deficit opens up with India. The East India Company makes a ton of money. But it starts putting the traditional English uh, wool business um, out of business and the wool industry out of business. And so there's kind of this like make England's wool industry great again movement that kind of <laughs> appears all of a sudden. I think I saw the baseball hat for that. <laughs> I, know, I know, it's weird. That was the other fashion of the time. And these women are kind of shamed publicly. They're called calico madams. You know, it's like there's something, you know, scandalous about the way they're betraying their country for this sensual fabric. And it's a fascinating kind of out, uh, outbreak, political outbreak. But of course, at the same time, they ban, they, they ban calico and chins for a while. But another group of people in England start saying, well, wait a second, what if we could create machines using steam power that could make some of these fabrics here in England? And that it, that literally is the birth of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that it it starts with that kind of textile production. So, so the first step is sh- increasing the width of shop windows because now you have these stores Making and these fancy stores. That led to the Industrial Revolution, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and then, of course, the it connects to the history of the United States because th- there are a lot of scholars who believe that had the South not gotten dependent on cotton as its, you know, kind of cash crop, um, that the social pressure against um, slavery would have outlawed slavery much earlier. Like it did in England, for instance, which outlawed it in 1831. Right. And so it's entirely possible if we hadn't developed this, this is is more speculative, but it's certainly related um, in a direct way, if we hadn't developed this kind of global taste for the the beauty and the and the soft, breathable fabric of cotton, um, slavery would have ended much earlier, and we wouldn't have had the Civil War. Why do you think? Um you know, well, well, I'll do I'll do one more uh, A and B, and then I want to <laughs> dive into, into process. Yeah, into process. But um, okay. Trying to crack roulette, trying to win roulette, yeah. led to Fitbits. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a great story uh, about um, 
Now I'm forgetting it's Claude Shannon, but I've, Ed, I've, 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 Edward, Edward Thorpe. Thorpe. Edward Thorpe. Yeah, he exactly. has a book coming out in a month, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's great. Uh, that's so interesting. So, uh, th- this is the late '50s and and early '60s, and and Shannon is already this brilliant, um, you know, mathematician and uh, computer pioneer, uh, and he's at MIT. And Thorpe is starts getting interested in um, roulette machines and whether roulette machines could be kind of hacked by some kind of technology. And so he consults uh, Shannon, and Shannon was just, you know, talk about the importance of play. Like, Shannon, there are all these descriptions of Shannon's, like, house outside of Cambridge in Massachusetts where he's, it's like a, I don't know, you can't tell if it's like a five-year-old's place or or if it's a I didn't know genius. that about Shannon until reading your book, actually. Like, I always think of him as sort of him and John von Neumann. I always think of them as the father of computing along with Alan Turing and yeah. so on. But I didn't realize how much he was into play and how much yeah. that inspired his thoughts and ideas and, and desires. He and was so like on. riding a unicycle and juggling and he had all these gambling machines and he had a giant swing. And so they, they would hang out at his house and kind of, on one level, it looked like they were a bunch of like kindergartners. And then on the other hand, it, they were doing pioneering work. And they basically figured out that if, if you could, if you could predict, if you could get it uh, an accurate read, or at least a roughly accurate read, on the velocity of the ball coming out of the, you know, whatever the shoot is that um, that they use in, in roulette, um, that you could predict slightly better than you know, kind of the house average um, where the ball was going to land. You could get just that little bit of an edge, and you could use that then to make a lot of money at roulette. And so that meant you basically had to time the the moment from the kind of release of the ball to when the ball started to kind of settle on the on the wheel. And so they basically built at a time when computers were like the size of a room or you know a giant uh, you know uh, armoire or something like that. Um, so they build this um, at a time when computers were massive. You know, you have these computers that were the size of a room practically. They built this tiny digital machine that um, was attached to kind of sensors, actually sensors in um, that they would wear in their shoe and to headphones. And one of them would basically, they and they, and they bought a regulation roulette wheel um, from Vegas so that they could test this in Shannon's basement. And they did all these tests on it. And then they went to Vegas. And basically, one of them would sit there and basically tap with their foot uh, when the ball was released and then when the ball kind of landed on the on the main wheel. And uh, then the computer would do calculations to figure out the rough velocity. And then that would give them enough time to place a bet if they had a good reading on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go. And th- at, at this point, like using a small, portable, wearable computer uh, attached to sensors um, was not against the law at all or against the regulations of gambling because no one had ever conceived of a computer being that small. I mean, this is really, it was the first wearable computer. If you think about it, it is the antecedent um for the iPhone, it's a small little digital device that you keep in your pocket right. that has headphones and has sensors, and you know that's it. Also, but it starts with this desire to break the the house at, at, at roulette, and they and they played a bunch of times and did in fact make money, um, and then they kind of lost interest in it, and and it eventually became against uh, against the rules in Vegas. So but don't it, try this at home. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because so much of um, and this is this is related to play, obviously. Uh, I mean, you talk about this throughout Wonderland and also in in h- how we got to now, but but 
play when it comes to, let's say, the pianola from several centuries earlier, where you had a kind of the player pianos and uh, this uh, gambling yeah. uh, where, where you're trying to beat roulette, or several centuries earlier when you're just trying to figure out what are the odds of a roll of dice, which led to, you know, probability theory didn't come because of the insurance industry was trying to be born. It came from gambling. Yeah. And so so much of computing and insur- the insurance industry and other uh, uses of probability, so much of, of computing also came from, from music. Like, it's interesting the role, how play came first and then kind of pure science came and, and, and industrial use came later. Why do you think you're the one to notice this. Why isn't this in like every history textbook written that every child re- should <laughs> yeah, be reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's a great question. Um, like I learned probability theory when I was in, I don't know, 10th grade or right. whatever. I didn't learn about, yeah. you know, here's how you beat blackjack or, oh. or anything like that. Well, there are two, there are two things I would say to that. The first is there's almost a book within a book in Wonderland about the history of computers because there it shows up in a bunch of the chapters, right? As I, as I alluded to, as you alluded to, there's this really rich, long history connecting computers and music. Um, a lot of important ideas that influenced the development of computers first were experimented with in music. Even things like typewriter keyboard. Right, right. Well, you, yeah. you actually even make the direct connection between... Uh, the, the, the only, there is a, a direct connection between pianos and keyboards, and we know this... The, the last remnant of this is just the phrase keyboard, yeah. you know, comes from the piano. <laughs> and the first, the typewriter, which then, of course, leads to computer keyboards, which are essential. I mean, imagine trying to program, how hard it would be to program all the things that we that we love today without keyboards. Um, so the, the, the typewriter is one of these weird inventions that it shows up, like, strangely late in the history of technology. Like, it should have been invented Hundreds of years before, we had all the ingredients, but right. no one kind of thought to do it uh, until the 1870s, really. Um, it was very strange. Uh, but when they finally did think about it, the inspiration came from music. They had um, keys, as you said, in keyboards come from the musical sense of keys. We'd had musical keyboards for 2,000 years. Like the Romans had water-powered organs with musical keyboards. Um, then we had harpsichords and clavichords and pianofortes and then player pianos and so on. Uh and so, p- p- uh, you know, player pianos, which were programmable. Right, hence. exactly. Yeah, a whole other kind of thread there. And the first typewriter that we would recognize as a modern typewriter was actually called the writing harpsichord. So we know that the, there was a direct link from music to the invention of, uh, of alphanumeric keyboards. So all of which is to say there's one kind of story, kind of mini book within Wonderland about um, just the, the the extent to which computing was shaped by music, by games, like the roulette story. Um, chess is obviously turning central to the, the chess history is of central com- to computing. The history of computing. So there's so there's a lot of just this kind of playful side. And if you ask people what what led to the invention of computers, they'll almost always say, "Well, it was it was the military was trying to solve you know the enigma, and it was trying to uh, calculate rocket trajectories, and you know it was big." military industrial complex, you know, thinking that led to the invention of computers. And, hey, that's part of the story. I mean, I'm not denying that that happened, but we don't tell that other story. And the question of why that is, and, you know, why, whenever you're, you know, we were hearing about it maybe for the first time in, in this book, I think it's partially because we tend to divide up the things that we do for fun, the things that we do in that kind of playful mode, the thing Brian Eno has a great quote about his definition of art, which is 
art is all the things we don't have to do. <laughs> like, we do these things not because we have to, but because we want to. They're kind of fun. There's no clear reason why we do them. They're just fun. But that world of play and amusement and delight, whatever you want to call it, um, tends to get segmented off. So we think of fashion as one part of that, and that's in its own world, and music is another thing, and then games are another thing. And they're all, when we study them or look at the history of them, we look at that history separately. And that history separate is interesting and revealing and tells us something about those subfields, but it's only when you put them all together under that one umbrella of, of delight and play that you can really see how how far-reaching the impact of those of, of those practices not, and how old it is, how much a part of being human that right. desire to play is. You know? I mean, I think that's I think that's the important part is that it's not that it's just this thing off to the side or another piece of the puzzle. It's that it's instrumental in yeah. how these industries were created. Like like if you look at you you point out the first viral piece of software was Space War, and right. also this was the first open source piece of software developed in the early sixties. It's essentially the video game that you could think of it almost like a mini asteroids. But this ultimately led to the Homebrew Club and Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak Absolutely. and Apple Computer and everything. So so you wonder if if really now let's say um trying to be a success or trying to figure out what my passion in life is, it shouldn't be, well, what can I do for work? It should be what games or what play fascinates me and this yeah. is what I should explore more to see how it fits into my work rather than the other way around. Yeah, and I, you know, I think about this a lot as a parent, right? It's just like trying to figure out, you know, there is this kind of traditional mode of parenting where you're kind of like, Here's what I think you should do for a living, or you really need to go to law school, or whatever it is, you right. know, that kind of mode. And it, instead, it's like, okay, what do you really love? Like, what are the things that you just find yourself, you know, talking to your kid, find yourself kind of drawn towards when you're not being told what to do? Like, what is that kind of playful interest? And then try and figure out a way to turn that into something that then becomes a career or a, or a passion. But, but not all, and I think you've thought about this a lot. It's, um, one of the themes of a lot of people that shared by kind of quality shared by a lot of people in my books is um, that they have a lot of hobbies. Hmm. And so, yeah, they have this one thing that they did really well, like Darwin, who shows up and he's all over where good ideas come from, right? He's right at the beginning and at the end of that book. And, and you know, yeah, Darwin's main focus, he did very well in that. <laughs> like, he, you know, comes up with the most important idea in science of the 19th century, probably. Uh but he had like a dozen other crazy, you know, side projects and hobbies and his beetles and his barnacles and all his different things in his garden and all the things that he was into. And, you know, Ben Franklin was like that. Joseph Priestley was like that in, in my book. Imagine Thomas Edison clearly was like you know, that. Yeah. And and Shannon, I mean, they're, they're a great example. Like, here's a guy. He's doing the most important pioneering kind of mathematical computational work of the 1950s. And he's learning how to juggle, you know. And the, the idea is that um, it, having these things at the kind of periphery of your of your focus um, that are things that you're passionate about but aren't necessarily directly related to your kind of main uh, job or career or, or, or project, whatever it is, um, keeping those things alive in your mind, taking time out, to leave behind your main project and go work on the side project and tinker with it. Um, like I, I, I've been talking about this a lot with with Wonderland. I, I, I play music. I'm an amateur musician. Um, I have like a studio with a bunch of guitars and 
keyboards and bass, and I can, you know, I've probably recorded like a hundred songs that I have written and played all the instruments on over the course of the last 10 years. And I think maybe like eight people have heard them. I did the the podcast we have, I did the, the theme song for that. That's the only thing that I've ever shared outside. And it's one of these hobbies where I have all this passion for it and zero ambition. You know, I just, I hmm. just, I just love it. And I want, I love getting better at it. I love learn, learning new things, but I have no, there's nothing in the back of my mind that's like, one of these days. <laughs> you don't want to be a rock and roll <laughs> well, star. I, just, I love just doing it. I love, and I love, because there's a lot of, it, it's partially the freedom, uh, and again, I'm kind of quoting you here, like the the freedom of, uh, uh, of sometimes having no ambition, you know, of kind of being like, I'm passionate about this, but I'm, I have so much ambition in the rest of my life, you know, like, like I'm going to write a book and I people are going to read it, hopefully, and I want to make a TV show or whatever. That's, you have to have kind of drive to do that. But, that having things where you're passionate, but you're just like, this is just for me. I get so much out of that. But then again, you say you have no ambition with it. But then again, when you start to look at the history of every aspect of what you're doing, from how sound is recorded on one on one aspect of music to how what was just the construction of these instruments, what's the history of the construction of a synthesizer, which yeah. was a piano, which was a harpsichord, which was a whatever, an organ. Um, these things have these very intricate histories that ultimately led to, you know, computing, phones, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, more boys than girls in China. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's the thing. It does it does end up coming back. So I I will probably never have a hit, <laughs> a hit song. Other than you your know. podcast intro, yeah, which is my podcast millions intro, which is lovely, to. lovely. lovely. Um, but, uh, but I would have never... You know, the sound chapter and how we got to now, the music chapter in Wonderland completely comes out of all those years spent thinking about, you know, music technology and, and what it means. I would have never gotten to those. Uh, I would have never had the kind of scaffolding to then go and do the research uh, for those chapters or be interested enough in it without those years tinkering kind of alone in my little music studio. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people 
who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. 
See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Many of uh, the things, like, there's there's more there's almost more to the story even than in in Wonderland like take Ed Thorpe with with his uh, roulette you know wearable computing and, yeah. and roulette he then went on to try to use uh, statistics to figure out blackjack he then used those same techniques to develop uh, an extremely successful hedge fund he became enormously rich as a result yeah. but he all he definitely attributes it all to his initial interest in you know games and gambling yeah. and so I wonder if we always say to ourselves now too much and we tell our kids oh play is frivolous not just something other that we're that we weren't told to do but but we're t- specifically told not to do it okay stop playing games and start to grow up and i wonder if in our lives now we should uh pay attention a little more to to play uh, I, absolutely i mean it, it is an, and there, there is you know there is an important movement that is out there already um in the education community, thinking about kind of game-based learning, um, where if, if you think about, when I just wrote a little piece about this at, at Medium, uh, about my own experience with my with my kids, um, if you think about it, we like walk around with a bunch of assumptions in our head about what a learning experience looks like, right? You know, traditional educational experience is like listening to a lecture, reading a book, um, watching an educational video. Like we have a set of, you know, taking an exam to test your learning. Right? And the the process of like both playing games, but also crucially, designing games. Um, these are incredibly rich, kind of intellectual activities. Um, and I, I just went through this with my with my now ten or eleven year old who was nine at the time, where we designed this board game. And it's a wonderful activity to do with a kid because one, you're both in it. You're kind of on the same level or sometimes maybe with board games like the kid is better than you because they've been spending more time playing board games recently. But the process of thinking about, here's this little miniature system. What should the rules be? Thinking about probability. What should, you know, okay, if we have dice, you're rolling two dice. Okay, what are the likelihood that you're rolling a two versus a seven? Okay, so what happens when you roll a seven? What does that mean? If you've got cards, what's the distribution of cards? How 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 do you interact on the board, et cetera? You dream up all these rules and think probabl- probabilistically. And, and you build basically an hypothesis in your head about how this game is going to work. Like what what's, what's the emergent behavior that's going to come out of the game once we start playing it? And then you play it, and you're like, "This game sucks. <laughs> like, or, this is—it's really boring. Or it, it ends after three turns. Or like, all the players end up getting stuck at this one point here, or whatever. And then you revise it based on that feedback, and then you play it again, and you tinker, and you revise. And it's the scientific method. It's product design. You know, it's—it's. It's, it's, well, and your kid loves it. They have no idea they're learning. They're just like, "This is so fun. I'm making a game." It's so. And so you talk about this process in in Wonderland. You have a, an excellent section on the development of Monopoly and how it started <laughs> yeah, off yeah. as kind of this yeah. way to it actually started off as an uh, rather than some woman writing an article about you know capitalism is bad she made kind of this weird game about capitalism which maybe wasn't fun initially but evolved over time to what we know as monopoly yeah this woman lizzie mcgee so it's, it's a great story in the history of games and kind of sadly underappreciated um and it's coming back to she was influenced she's this fascinating woman at the end of the 19th century who was influenced by Henry George, the progressive kind of 
economist um, who influenced a lot of people, who's actually, I, some of his ideas are kind of coming back. He's, I was just reading a galley of Richard Florida's new book about the new urban crisis, and he's talking about this guy. And, and Lizzie McGee is a big follower of this guy, you know, 110 years ago. And a lot of people wrote pamphlets and articles espousing his views. Boring. She was, she was like, she was like, I think a board game would be a good way to get these ideas out there. So she invents this game called the Landlord's Game, which if you look at, a, you know, a version of it, um, you will recognize it immediately as Monopoly. It is Monopoly. It's got all the, you're buying property, you're selling property, you've got, you know, jail, you've got all the things, there's pass and go, everything's there, building on top of the properties. And that game never really takes off. And it includes, by the way, which is ironic because Monopoly then became the ultimate capitalist like celebration, but hers was this super left-wing progressive idea and included a version where the goal was not to accumulate the most money, but the goal was to end the game with everyone with more or less the same amount of money. And and the, boring. The, <laughs> and that that version for some reason never took off, right? Uh, but anyway, that game goes into circulation and gets picked up by you know kind of a bunch of folks in the progressive movement, and then finally. Um, uh, what's his name? Charles Clarence Darrow. No, it's Charles Darrow, right? Okay. Clarence Darrow is the Charles Darrow, right? I think that's right. Anyway, um, Darrow something. Darrow, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of sees this game and kind of remodels it, but really doesn't change it at all, and claims he's invented it, and you know sells it to Parker Brothers and makes a fortune, and uh, and Lizzie McGee kind of gets lost to history. Yeah, dies penniless <laughs> again. Well, just a little trivia note. What's uh, the best color properties to own a Monopoly? Uh, it's it's the oranges, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because you're you're because people end up in jail, um, and so they're rolling a seven, eight, or nine puts you right yeah. in that in that zone. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've been playing a lot of Monopoly with my kids. <laughs> all right, so you so you know you know the tricks. So so again, like all these weird connections. When you're coming up with a book, it's as if you find like. You come up with a theme, play, or innovations that shape modern history, or where do ideas come from? And now you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to come up with the hundred weirdest connections I could think of. Yeah. And, and they're, but they're not weird. They're actually real. Yeah. And how do you, yeah. what's your process? Like, how do you come up with all these ideas? So, um, and I just want to make sure your time is okay here. All right, we got, we're good. Um, first off, the, the kinds of books that I, now write um, have been made I would say you know 10 times easier thanks to the internet um, and and to ebooks and uh, I'm old enough to when I used to write books when most kind of research materials weren't online yet and there were no such things as ebooks and downloadable PFs, PDFs of academic articles and so just just the amount of time you would spend following a lead and you're like I wonder what the deal is with what came before department stores. Like, that would take you three weeks just to get to the library, to get to the card catalog, to, like, right. start... I mean, it was just really hard to find things. And now, all of the technologies... I mean, this is the one part of the Internet that I think, you know, this kind of research it is the one thing in the Internet that is uncontroversially, like, absolutely way better. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no downside to it, I think. Anyway, um, so that part of it is, has gotten much better. But w what... Ha Wonderland... I was saying the other day, Wonderland, I was very conscious of as, as a book that um, it was very helpful to be a older person writing this book. To be, I'm 48, so 
I don't know if that makes me middle aged, but whatever it is, I'm 48 uh, as well. Uh, so. Yeah, so whatever. So we're not we're, middle aged. We're whatever. old. <laughs> we're old. But the, I, I was very aware of like for for a book that covers so many different things. I was old enough that I had for each chapter, I had been accumulating some kind of n- notes uh, or, or stories um, over those 20 or 30 years. So the department store thing that got me started in the fashion chapter. Um, there's this outbreak of kleptomania in these in these early Paris, the first department stores like the Bon Marche, where these wealthy women start stealing, um, and they're just overwhelmed by the even though they can afford the goods, this the kind of sensory overload of this new department store space causes them to just kind of go crazy and they start stealing. It's called the department store disease, and it's this huge kind of controversy in Paris. I heard about that story when I was in grad school in literature because we were reading Zola who wrote about it in uh, one of his books and and it just stuck in my head for 24 years. Why did it stick in your head? Why did it's that a great story. I don't know, just something about the the kind of uh, an outbreak of kleptomania and and the phrase department store disease and I just was somewhere in my head and so when I was thinking about you know what the chapters could be for Wonderland I thought about fashion, and I was like, oh, I know I could tell a good story with that. that that'll that be good. And so then I, as I just described to you, I kind of backed into the, the those early luxury stores, and that got me to the Industrial Revolution and got me to cotton and slavery, and then I was like, done. You know, that, that'll be a great chapter. I know. I know. And I'd written a lot about games over the years. I wrote a book called Everything Bad is Good for You, defending kind of video Another games. great book, by the way, which it's almost, I, I don't bring it up so much in this one because it's almost worthy of another podcast. I'll come back point. anytime. Yeah. yeah, it'd be fun to revisit that book, actually, because I wrote that a long time ago. Um, so so I had an, enough about games to know that there was something interesting there. And so uh, you kind of start with with these kinds of books. You, you, you plant these little flags <laughs> in the terrain where you're like, I know I have a story here and here that that I can build a chapter around, and I know I have a story here and here that I can build a chapter around. I, I knew the Willis Carrier air conditioning story. There, that's alluded to in Where Good Ideas Come From. I don't know if you remember, and then it becomes a whole set piece in How We Got to Now. So I knew, uh, in fact, that was the first story that I had for How We Got to Now was the Carrier leading to Reagan. That was, that was the beginning of that whole project in a way. Um, and so then once you get some little grounding, then you start... Then you start doing these kind of, I don't know, uh, explorations ar- around that terrain, and 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 when you do that, um, this is maybe my favorite part of the whole process because it's just six months or a year of kind of just sitting and reading stuff and and following these trails. And the the big thing is you have to be really rigorous about when you when it just doesn't work. You're kind of like, I wonder if there's right, a connection make- between the invention of the telephone and, uh, you know, I don't know, um, the the um, uh, Vietnam War, or whatever. You know, you're like, you you sense that there's something there, and so then you do a lot of digging around, and you're like, you know what? It's just, it's not. It's too many degrees of separation. It's not directly connected. Well, and, and you address that in the very beginning of I, I I forget now whether it's Wonderland or how we got to now, but with the that. What you're talking about is not quite the hummingbird effect, where the the where the it's not the butterfly effect. Butterfly effect. Yeah, I call it the, the, confusingly the hummingbird effect, where, where the flapping of a, a butterfly's exactly. wings can co- cause a hurricane. Because you're actually that that sort of chance things that happen. The, you're actually working really hard to make the actual connections. Yeah, it has to be you know two or three steps removed. Like in in the butterfly effect from from chaos theory, it's like a, a butterfly flaps its a, its wings somewhere in you know in Brazil, and it ends up influencing a 
hurricane forming in the uh, middle of the Atlantic. But between those two things, there are millions of interacting kind of parts and variables or molecules of air or whatever it is that are kind of connecting. And because everything is connected, you can make those links. That's interesting, and that's chaos theory. (laughs) But that's not what I'm talking about. This is a situation where when we introduce new technologies, when we introduce new new ideas, um, new institutions that, that are designed to solve a specific problem or satisfy a certain need, there are always these strange, unanticipated, direct causal effects of those Like the development of the air conditioner. Right, right. It had a one purpose, and then, and then almost used, immediately was used yeah. for something else, and that itself then led to a population migration, which then directly led to a change in the Electoral College, which was then exploited by Ronald Reagan. It's four steps to Reagan. It's not a million steps to Reagan. So so, so I think kind of um, uh, an, uh, an outtake from this is that uh, looking at the ancillary... Uh, events that happen because of one event could lead to something very important. So, so if I'm to apply this into my own daily life, it's kind of this playfulness, like looking for other uh, ideas that could stem from initial piece of work or play that I'm doing could become very important in my life. Like I, I'm trying to always bring this down to yeah, what can yeah, how someone can use it. So, so on the one hand, someone can use this because oh, that's interesting. That's a new way of thinking about things. I should look at new ways of thinking about things. But another thing is. Just with play, if you push yourself a little more, there's always kind of uh, different things that can happen. So so you talk a lot in Wonderland. You say there's almost like a, a mini book about computing in here. There's also a mini book about uh, spaces yeah. in this. You know, the idea that a, a tavern and then a coffee house and then a department store, uh, that, that actual physical locations where people could meet and congregate and exchange ideas and things can happen, that leads to uh, an outgrowth of new ideas that never would have happened. Well, like, you know, as, as you know from reading these books, one of my probably annoying texts is that I keep continually writing about coffee houses. Like, it's, you know, it's central right. and very good ideas come from Dude, a ten talks on the yeah. talk, you know, and, and I do it again in Wonderland. I tried to bring in entirely new stories about coffee houses, but it's so important. Like, they create this space um, uh, when coffee is introduced to London, particularly, um, and London just goes crazy for coffee and all these coffee houses are formed. And out of those coffee houses, that is the birth of the English Enlightenment. I mean, all these ideas in politics and technology and business come out of the coffeehouse scene. And and the the quote that actually I hadn't written about before is just like with Calico and Chintz right around the same time, actually. Um, Charles II tries to ban these coffeehouses. And because from his perspective, it looks like everybody's just slacking off, like all these people or, should or be going to work. Rebellion. Or preventing rebellion. But, and he was kind of right about the second, but wrong about the slacking off or... Confused, and he has this line where he says, you know, that the coffee houses are distracting people from their, quote, lawful calling and affairs. And so they should, and so he literally orders this decree saying coffee houses shut down. And that decree lasts one week because <laughs> everybody is like, no, we're, we're not giving up these coffee houses. And he was wrong. They, it ended up being an incredibly productive space, just as bars and taverns have been incredibly productive spaces in terms of social movements, political movements, gay rights movements. The American Revolution basically kind of happened in bars. Um, or was, but, so, so what happens now with the internet? Like, essentially, like take stores, for instance, or even take fashion stores. They don't exist as... Des- they're, they're declining yeah. as destination spaces now because of the internet. So what what's kind of the future in terms of um, using s- common spaces to collaborate? Well, this is the weird... Um, paradox of our moment where 
the stores are uh, seem to be kind of withering thanks to um, you know Amazon and the internet. But and that was a prediction a lot of us, maybe not me, but a lot of people were saying. 25 years ago, that you get these decentralized networks and people are no longer going to want to cluster in things like downtown shopping um, uh, neighborhoods um, or, uh, you know, even leave their homes. Um, so that is happening with stores, with particularly with big chain stores. Um, on the other hand, uh, downtown urban areas are doing better than ever after mm. you know after decades of the kind of suburbanization of culture the uh you know disappearance of the kind of inner city core all of a sudden that's been reversed in the last 15 years and now why is you know, that it's a really interesting question um one argument that that i've tried to make is that it turns out that the internet um well it makes living the, the old idea was like no one will want to live in an expensive downtown and crowded downtown area um when you have the internet you can shop from home and talk to your friends and just stay on your ranch in montana or something like that right but it turns out that the internet actually uh actually adds maybe adds more to city environments um than it does to rural environments because Cities are classic kind of information overload problems. There's a million things to do. There are a million people around you. There are a million, million stores, whatever. And once we had GPS, once we had social media, suddenly it was it was a great tool for kind of navigating a city or discovering new things or realizing that this band is playing tonight that you hadn't known about or where you, that your friends were down the street and then you could go meet them. And and so in a in a like a classic like one horse town, the addition of that layer of meta information about the community isn't that useful because you can see the one horse. Um, but in a big metropolitan city, the internet actually makes it more exciting and more interesting in a, in a kind of disproportionate way. But there are other there are other forces too. I mean, this is this is a um, this is a big argument. This is in this new Richard Florida book. Um, I think people began to realize part of the argument and where good ideas come from that um, there is something about face-to-face -face diverse communities that is both good for you as a person and good for businesses, good for innovation. Um, and so people are realizing in these kind of, you know, superstar cities, as, as they say, like New York, like London, like San Francisco, that crowding together actually has a lot of benefits. Um, and so we've kind of begun to realize the value of like, having dense neighborhoods again. Um, Particularly as crowding together, but as you mentioned, now we have more information about how to, even within this crowd, to compartmentalize into our group. So there's meetups, there's social media, there's so on, and it says, okay, be here at this time, and there's going to be 12 like-minded people who you can collaborate with. Yeah, meetup, you know, um, is actually a really kind of seminal breakthrough, I think, because it was one of the first times where we could see that you could use the technology. The technology wasn't just about like, oh, now we can telecommute. Now we can be physically apart, but kind of mentally together. And I was like, oh, actually, this technology can help us do a better job of being physically together and mentally together. And we can form these kind of clusters where we can find people who are around us and, and get together with them. And um, I think there's an important history to be written about Meetup in changing our kind of minds about tech and, the, and communities. But whatever, it's all added up to this interesting thing where urban areas... In, in many cases, are doing better than ever, even if the big old chain department stores are 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 not. But other kinds of shopping experiences, like indie bookstores, 
are thriving now. Like they've had a great run the last five or six years. Mm. Um, and so there's something about a real world, um, unique, um, you know, artisanal, <laughs> whatever it is, kind of shopping experience where it, it's not just going to Borders, but it's going to your local bookstore that we've rediscovered the importance of for, for whatever reason. And so, um, so so the future may be, if you've got to do just kind of generic shopping, the internet is great for that. But if you want to go and shop with a community and have a really interesting kind of nuanced experience, um, that's where you want to go to that local bookstore that's that's not part of a chain. And there's room for both of those things in the world. But what gets lost in the middle is the big anonymous physical chain. I mean, I think my main takeaways from Wonderland, and by the way, all the we only touched upon a few of the connections. I really do think you can make a board game based on <laughs> the connections here. And I'm serious. I was doing this with a friend of mine, and she even suggested this could be a game. Yeah, like, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Here's two connections he just made. Make the link. Right. But, um, but the takeaways I get is to really not just study these stories, but study the people behind them. Like you say, Claude Shannon, I had no idea he was so into games and acrobatics and so on. So, yeah. so really, the takeaways I get is you know, keep on encouraging the play in my life and not only play more, but really d dive deep into where does this play come from and what are the next steps and how do you improve and so on. Then there's collaboration and finding spaces to physically collaborate. Yeah. Then there's looking at, and this is from your more from your other book, um, Where Do I Good Ideas Come From? Uh, looking at the adjacent possible. So, okay, I have this... Uh, a drone that can flow. Can I um, attach it to my backpack and now I can fly? Right. So you know that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a keeper. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll invent it. We'll make a company. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so 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 there's there's a lot of takeaways about ideas that I think extend what you've written about before, and I and I highly recommend uh, Wonderland. Just such an enjoyable book. What are what are five books you would recommend uh, that? And and by the way, I always say your your books and there's just a few authors I say this about your books and uh, I say this about Matt Ridley I say this about Nassim Taleb I feel like my IQ goes up when I read oh, well, one of nice. your one of your books that's so good. I'm actually writing I'm writing a book about long-term decision making now and and there's part of the argument of that book is that literature is one of the ways that humans rehearse complex decisions like not blink decisions, system one decisions, but decisions that take a lot of time and that are made up of all these complicated variables. And reading novels, so Middlemarch, which will be my fifth book here, um, which has at its core these incredibly complex decisions that these vividly rendered human beings are, are making in the course of that book. And by reading those uh, stories, though they're fictional, we kind of prepare ourselves for our own life decisions that we make. We're watching somebody in a fictional world making those decisions beautifully rendered by a great novelist is a way of running basically a parallel simulation hmm. for our own lives. Um, well, and then, and then let me ask you then, uh, and this harks back, harkens back to your earlier book, what is your one favorite thing that everybody thinks is bad for you that is actually good for you? <laughs> I mean, I, I would probably, I, you know, I, I regret saying this a little bit since my kids might listen to this, but but... But the assumption that video games are just this terrible waste of time and this generation is growing up playing these stupid games is really... What's your favorite video game right so now? so wrong. Uh, I, 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 they're too hard now. Like, I've been watching my kids play the new Battlefield, Battlefield 1, which is set in World War One, and it's amazing. And what I do with my kids is I sit and watch them play and ask them what they're thinking about. Because as a grown-up who doesn't play the game, you can't process it. 
I mean, it's just so much going on in the world. And they're playing this multiplayer game in this incredibly vivid landscape with a million kind of data points strewing across the screen. And and so I'm always like, tell me, how did you know that there was that thing was there? And he's like, well, couldn't you see this signal? And I got this one piece of the interface was telling uh-huh. me that. And I'm like, I can't, I, all I can see is like, there's a gun and like, there's a Zeppelin. <laughs> like, that's all I can tell. You know, like, so I kids are tell. basically going to destroy us. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're the ones that are going to end up in diapers. They started yes. off there, we end up that's, there. Well, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so, so Stephen Johnson, author of Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. What an excellent book. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And we're definitely going to do this again because I want to talk about everything is that is bad is good for you. I'd love to come back. Thanks excellent. All right, well, thanks a lot. That was so much fun. Yeah. Next time on The James Altucher Show. You know, showbiz, and not to be cliche or stereotype, but you've got, in many cases, a lot of ambitious, competitive, eccentric people. (laughs) You put them in a room and give them a deadline, and that can, you know, uh, lead to a lot of clashes. And one of the things people make fun of about Jon Stewart in the book, uh, people who worked with him at The Daily Show, is he would wear the same thing in the office every day. You know, a pair of work boots, a pair of chinos, same t-shirt, same Mets hat. And while they, you know, rag him about essentially being a slob, there was, not to get cheaply psychological, also something John was communicating in that, that he was simplifying a lot of the extraneous stuff and getting to work. He was showing up at nine every day, ready to work. It wasn't about... Um, quote unquote the um, the trappings of show business it was about let's okay today is today and, and what was in the news and what's funny about it and what's our point of view and, and so on exactly Steve Carell uh, did a famous piece on the Straight Talk Express bus with John McCain right in the 99 campaign and he asked a series of really softball questions you know what kind of tree would you be that kind of thing and McCain who's got a sense of humor plays along and then Carell asks a, a policy question. He says, you know, uh, you're a strident opponent of pork barrel spending, yet when you had the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, you dedicated more money to individual districts and pork barrel projects than anyone in history. And McCain freezes. There's a real deer-in-the-headlights moment, which Carell bursts by saying, oh, I don't even know what those words mean, and they go back to laughing. Well, okay, in that part, I, I highlighted that exact story in the book um, because what if he did not pull back from it? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.